This is Salt and Spine. I just felt that food was and cooking was such a conduit for having all of these conversations that I knew were there, but I didn't know what specific things would come out of it. Immigration comes up over and over, or motherhood comes up over and over, or environmental impact and sustainability. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from one of today's guests, Lindsay Gardner. Now, Lindsay is an artist whose illustrations and watercolor works have appeared in numerous media, including in several recent cookbooks. An avid home cook herself, Lindsay began to take a greater interest in cooking after having kids, a milestone that shaped how she thinks about the connections between food and her identity as a woman. Those connections often come back to this question, why do we cook? As Lindsay talked with more and more women in food media, restaurants, and the broader industry, she found both similar and totally unique responses to that question. And thus, her first book, titled Why We Cook, Women on Food, Identity, and Connection. Featuring interviews, recipes, and essays from more than 100 women in food, the book is beautifully illustrated throughout with Lindsay's work, watercolors of the interviewees and contributors, paintings of memorable meals or stories brought to life. It's a diverse volume, both in format and in contributors, ranging from cookbook authors to professional chefs to fellow home cooks. It's both a who's who of women in food and shines a light on important new voices. We're joined today by Lindsay and one of the book's contributors, Katiana Hong. Katiana graduated from the Culinary Institute of America and quickly rose in the ranks at Michelin-starred spots like the restaurant at Meadowood in Napa Valley. It was there where she became the first female chef de cuisine of a three-star Michelin restaurant in the United States, and then she moved to lead the kitchen at Charter Oak, where she earned numerous accolades. But she stepped away in 2019 for both maternity leave and to reset and come back to the industry in a new way. Later this year, she's slated to open Yang Bang Society, a Korean-American-owned deli and market with her husband John in Los Angeles's Arts District. Now, Lindsay and Kat joined us remotely to talk about the Why We Cook book, about gender equity in the food industry and their relationships to cooking. Plus, we're playing a fun culinary game and we've got featured excerpts from Why We Cook on our website. So let's head down to our virtual studio where Lindsay Gardner and Katiana Hong joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, it's great to be here. Hello. Thanks for having us. Of course, thrilled to have both of you um, to talk about Lindsay, your your new book, Why We Cook, which is beautiful, Women on Food, Identity, and Connection, and excited to talk with both of you about this book and some of the themes here today. But first, we always like to start just by talking about both of you and getting to know your backgrounds a little bit more. So I'd, I'd love to talk just a little bit about the role that food played in your lives when you were growing up and the presence that food had for you. So Lindsay, I know, I think you grew up in Michigan. Is that right? I did. Yep. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. And you talk a little bit about your mother in the introduction to the book and the, the influence that she had on you kind of just as a person who's curious about the world and engaging in, in conversations with strangers and things. But what sort of role did food play in your life growing up? And were there figures that were influential to you as you sort of became a, a home cook yourself? You know, um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this since uh, the book has been a real thing in the world, especially. And of course, I've had some really funny and fun conversations with my mom 
But my relationship with food with, uh, through her, through the lens of cooking with my mom was, um, was really sort of focused on health food, actually. All growing up, she really sort of schooled us constantly in sort of what food could do for our bodies and how food was energy for our bodies. And so everything that we ate and cook was sort of presented through that lens, which of course was not always the most appealing as, <laughs> as a kid. Um, sure. but, but lessons that I'm really grateful, grateful for now in terms of like knowing how to feed myself and take care of myself. And also that come up pretty often when I'm working with my own kids in the kitchen and um, cooking with them by my side. So, you know, I joke with my mom that I was the kid on the playground or at lunchtime that had like carob covered raisins in my <laughs> lunchbox uh-huh. and, and that nobody wanted to trade for trade lunch with me, uh, which was always a little bit contentious, but I am really actually grateful for that sort of basis in my, in my understanding of food and nutrition. Yeah. And Kat, you were born in Korea and then adopted by a family in I think upstate New York. Is that right? Yep. That's correct. And you talk a little bit about your relationship to food in one of the essays in the book, but can you talk about the role that food played for you as you were growing up? And then I know as you, as you got older, you became more interested in Korean food in particular. I don't know. I think I've always been just interested in food. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny, Lindsay, you talk about like health and everything. So I was um, a pretty competitive gymnast when I was younger. And of course, that's very like diet focused. And I even remember one time, you know, they're always encouraging you to lose weight or be smaller. And at one point, this teacher even told us like, oh, you should just eat like a half cup of rice and a cup of vegetables a day. And so anyways, when I stopped doing gymnastics, I actually went like the opposite way. And I just became obsessed with food (laughs) and eating everything and having new experiences and cooking. And just it was like sky's the limit. Um, And then at the same time, you know, that's when I was a a teenager. So then there were questions of, you know, where do I come from? And, uh, you know, what's the food of, you know, my culture and where I was born? And I think just because I was interested in food, the easiest way for me to identify and to kind of learn about being Korean was, was through Korean cooking. That's very helpful context, I think, for both of you and the the insight that you both bring to this book. So let's talk a little bit about how the book came to be then. Lindsay, I think you sort of, you write in the introduction that you were cooking dinner for your family in 2018 and you started to wonder why, what draws you to the kitchen day after day in the same way that you're an artist, that you're drawn to your art studio. Can you talk about how the book came to be and was it was it really sort of that spur of the moment like you're cooking dinner one night and an idea pops into your head or was it more gradual it was uh, it was both it was of okay. course gradual because a, a book takes a long time to make as you know and bring all the various pieces together um, it was sort of a, a lot of thought processes that had been floating around in my mind in my studio that sort of converged in a, in a moment in the kitchen like that. And of course, like the whole concept for the book didn't come together in that moment, but it was sort of one of those moments where a lot of different pieces of thought processes sort of came together. And I was actually literally working with food and thinking about what I had been doing in the studio that day. And, you know, I was sort of like half aggravated that I was making dinner and half 
enjoying it and just sort of like, what am I, what does this all mean? And why am I, why am I thinking so much about it? And how does it all fit together? And, and, you know, my kids were sitting right there in the kitchen and it just all felt like it was coming together at the same time. So a lot of the questions that I was thinking about at the time, not only had to do with cooking, but creative process in general, and also identity as a mom and as a woman and how to sort of how I was balancing the various parts of my life in different ways and why this particular thing and the creative outlet in the kitchen meant so much to me and what it really meant to me. And I think that was really the genesis of the questions that led me to want to reach out to other people and talk to them about those same things. And then you spent, I think, close to two years doing exactly that, right? Like cold calling folks across the food industry, like broad food industry, you know, not just chefs like Kat, but folks who are activists and um, home cooks. And what was that process like of really trying to bring in so many unique voices into a relatively succinct volume? It was thrilling and terrifying and um, exciting. And uh, it felt really intimidating at the beginning because, um, as you know, I'm not I'm not part of the culinary world. I'm not a food writer. It felt like I was really going out on a limb. And there was a while at the beginning where I sort of kept having that feeling of like, is this a conversation that people want to have? And is it a conversation that people want to have with me? But I kind of pushed through that. And I was lucky at the time, right now I'm in Michigan, but at the time I was living in Oakland and I had been in the Bay Area since 2005 until this last year. So I was lucky enough to get to go to a couple of really meaningful and significant events. One at La Cocina, which was their F&B Voices uh, mm-hmm. from the Kitchen event. And I got to hear a, a number of incredible writers read their pieces and that sort of spurred another level of interest. And then I also went to a screening of A Fine Line, the documentary at CIA Copia. And that all happened sort of in the span of a few months from when this idea was sort of just like generating in my head. And I remember particularly walking into this event at the CIA and I was running late because I ha- my daughter was two years old at the time. And my husband and I had done like the switch off at the end of the day and I had drive to Napa and I was like, what am I doing? I shouldn't even be here. And I walked in right behind all of the, all of the people that were on the panel. <laughs> and, and then because I was in the back of the auditorium, I actually walked out behind them too. And so it, it just ended up that I was like right near them. And I sort of just was like, this is, I just have to go for it. And I just walked up to people and introduced myself and told them what I was working on. And a lot of the people that I met in that moment ended up being people that continued to be wonderful, generous resources. Like, um, for example, Miriam Ahmed, who was the program director at CIA at the time, is the person who introduced me to Kat. So it was kind of like a just organic process. Um, And so it was a number of things like that. And then it was also a ton of just straight up cold calling and emailing and like tracking down people's publicists and being fairly persistent. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know how that goes. Mm -hmm. Um, So you opened the book sort of by talking about the state of affairs, maybe we could call it so to speak. I mean, in terms of representation and what the industry looks like, you talk about 
for home cooks that there's some surveys that show about 70% of women are doing the cooking at home versus 46% of men who say they regularly cook at home. You share some statistics on the professional culinary world too, where women are increasingly making up a, a larger share of professional cooks, but are still quite underrepresented when you look at who has leadership positions in kitchens, and particularly when we talk about women of color and LGBTQ women. How much of those factors were like driving where this book went for you as as the person bringing all these folks together and putting this into one volume? And and Kat, I'd love your insight too as a as a person who works in the the professional culinary industry. Like how much those factors were on your mind as you were were contributing to this work by Lindsay. I'm really glad you brought that up. It was a huge priority from the start of the book coming together for me. I really wanted to make sure that I included as broad a range of voices and perspective as possible. And I think in some ways, because I am an outsider to the industry, in some ways I had the benefit of not knowing everything about everyone from the beginning. And so there was sort of a neutrality in that where I approached it with, uh, it was like one of those times when being a little bit naive is helpful. And so it really, I, I think it worked in my benefit because I had a different perspective than maybe someone coming at it with years and years of experience writing on the topic. I think all I'm trying to say is that that gave me sort of like fresh eyes looking at some of how to balance contributors from many geographic areas with different kinds of backgrounds with doing different things with different uh, focuses like you know activism or writing or recipe development and it was it was really important to me that it wasn't just people who were already really well known so and i also wanted to balance sort of the full end of the spectrum from people just coming up in the industry to um, more seasoned, experienced people that I had had some experience reading, like Ruth Reichel. So it really was, I wanted it to be this sort of like very full picture. And even now, like looking back through the book, there are so many more people that could also be included in this book. And I, you know, that is exciting. And also it was one of the challenges of trying to sort of call a list or a group of contributors to, to be part of it. Yeah, and I and Kat, I know you. Several years ago, I think you were the you were the first woman to become a chef de cuisine at a three Michelin star restaurant in the United States when you were working at the restaurant at Meadowood. Can you talk about how? Which I read that fact and was also just like floored that in 2014 that was like a groundbreaking thing. I mean that that kind of paints a picture for folks too of how underrepresented women and women of color are in leadership positions and professional kitchens. But how much of that has been a a factor for you in your culinary career, thinking about that sort of progress? Yeah, actually, when I became um, Chef de Cuisine, my husband actually pointed that out to me, that that there were no other women CDCs in the three Michelin world. Well, in the United States, at least. Um, but to be uh-huh. honest, when he said that to me, I'm like, that's odd. That's something you look at um, because it would have never have occurred to me. I think the industry, like especially when I was coming up, maybe a little less so now, but back when I was starting off as a cook, was so male dominated that I just kind of became used to it. And I never always, I never really, you know, realized 
how much like when you walk into a professional kitchen and, and see a girl or a woman or, um, you know, in my case, like a five foot two Asian girl amongst all the, you know, the sea of like men in white coats. I didn't even realize like how rare that was just because I had become accustomed to, to that type of situation. Um, but then after he pointed that out to me, you know, I think it helped me become much more aware of, you know, the lack of presence of a lot of women in these professional kitchens. And then even more so like in the, the two and three Michelin star level, because when you are cooking at that level, it's such a commitment that at that point, a lot of women have dropped out before they get there, just because you want to have a family or you want to get married and have other focuses and interests. So yeah, I think it's even more rare in that type of caliber, which it's changing now, I think. But um, even so, you know, I always being in that environment, you know, I've always wanted kids, I've always wanted a family, I like children. But after so long of cooking in that environment, I found myself saying, maybe to fit in, like, oh, I don't care. It's not on my mind. Or um, it's not something I think about. It doesn't concern me. And, you know, that I definitely contributes why I waited to, for so long to start a family. And and I read too, that you worked like through your eighth month of pregnancy, right? Like, I did. I, you know, I would have worked wow. longer. Too. <laughs> um, I probably would have worked right up until um, I've heard, you know, some friends that do that. But it's just what transition wise that, you know, the new chef was there. And I was kind of like, he used to be one of my cooks and then a sous chef at the restaurant at Meadowood. So he was ready to have his own space and his own platform. And so I think I was kind of just like hovering. So I bowed out around my eighth month. But yeah. um, physically, I think I actually would have preferred to work longer because then that last month, I really like, I don't know, I blew up. <laughs> I, was, I was healthier when I was working. Yeah. Sure. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Why We Cook author Lindsay Gardner and chef Katiana Hong. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of Why We Cook, along with watercolor prints from the book. You can also find featured recipes from the book. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guests, Lindsay Gardner and Katiana Hong, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. And we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Lindsay Gardner and Katiana Hong. You also address at the beginning of the book, Lindsay, some of the factors that have changed in our, our global landscape since the book had originally, you know, you started to put this book together. Obviously, we've have gone through and are going through a, a global pandemic, which has had a huge impact on the restaurant industry, on on culinary industry at large. You talk about um, the movement for Black Lives gaining momentum in a, an unprecedented way over the summer. And you say it's sort of impossible to know where we'll be by the time you're holding this book in your hands. Can you talk about that aspect of this work, sort of the social aspect because it isn't just a book um, as we noted that features restaurant chefs and folks who are sort of entrenched in the professional culinary world but there's 
a lot of home cooks, a lot of activists, a lot of, um, it just sort of runs the gamut. And so what, what were you thinking in terms of like how this fits into the larger social conversations about how we operate as a society and how that relates to food? Lofty question. That's a great question. There's like so many different answers to that. You know, I think that something that stands out to me, I might, I might answer this in a few different parts, but when I started, I think I didn't even realize how much there was that I knew there was a lot to explore, but I don't think I realized how many threads of continuity there would be between various contributors contributions to the book. And so I guess when I say that, I mean, there are places where the theme like a, a immigration comes up over and over, or motherhood comes up over and over, or, and, you know, environmental impact and sustainability. And these are not topics that I went into the book thinking, I want to write a book about food that also touches on social justice, for example, I just felt that food was and cooking was such a conduit for having all of these conversations that I knew were there, but I didn't know what specific things would come out of it. And I think that um, that has been because of where I started in 2018. And then of course, where we are now, I think that has almost been just totally reaffirming to the inkling that I had at the beginning of the process. And what I knew was there that that needed to be explored more deeply. And I think that in terms of who is represented in the book, I think that for me as a home cook and an artist, I think that where I see the connection between all of these sort of themes and people and different perspectives is through that lens of being in my own kitchen and trying to sort of understand a lot of different issues through the lens of cooking. And so that was, it was really important to me to have the voices of home cooks represented in the book, because in, in a lot of ways, I think that is the connection point. Even professional chefs are also home cooks. And food writers that are super well-known and famous and experienced are also home cooks. And so I think there was sort of, that's where all the dots connected for me. And then I think it's just been so incredible to see how many people in the book and how many sort of of these converging themes like have have been able to sort of come out of the conversation and overlapping ideas not to say that everyone has the same perspective on on a topic or anything but just that there are ways that we can share conversation and that it all comes through this lens of cooking and food it's it has be has been really powerful especially in a time when it's been so incredibly isolated and there have been so many challenges on so many different levels this year, especially these conversations were so reassuring and there was so much just generosity and hope in all of the conversations that I had with the women in the book. There has been so much revealed about food systems this this year, especially. And I think that that is another point of connection where the pandemic has sort of stripped away any artifice of like, you can't, you can't, you can't ignore this anymore, if you were before. And that has revealed again, in a new way, how connected we are all through this system of food that is part of our lives every day. Was there anything sort of on that note that really surprised you or shocked you as you were 
curating all of this content? Let's see. I think something that was surprising, surprising and not surprising was that by the time that I had sort of gotten to the end of the official research process, when I knew that I that there wasn't room to include anyone else or any other uh, written content, that I was still finding more and more people that I was like, maybe this should be a volume two or, um, you know, they're just, it just was sort of never ending. And in a similar way, my curiosity about the topic is ongoing. Like there's just, it's just such an, there's so much to mine, as you know, this is your specialty, but like the stories that people have and how people relate to food is something that is just endlessly fascinating. And I I don't think that I expected to get to the end of a three-year project writing a book and feel like I could just keep doing this. And you also illustrated the entire book. I mean, you're an artist. That's that's your vocation. Um, What was that process like in bringing some of these, you know, there's, there's portraits of some of these women that you're bringing to life through your art. You're sometimes drawing their kitchens or painting their kitchens or a recipe. How did you sort of approach the art piece of the book? Well, it, it was one of the most fulfilling projects creatively that I've ever done, first of all. It was really fun. I think one of the reasons that I love working in illustration is because it is so related to storytelling. And I loved being in this in literal conversation with the contributors and then sort of having what I thought of as like an art dialogue with their stories. And so Kat's a great example of this. She sent all these photos from her, I think it was your first trip to Korea with John, right? Maybe it wasn't My second trip with John, but it was the first trip with his whole family and meeting his family in Korea. So she sent some photos of the meal that she describes in her essay in the book and while I didn't work literally from her photos, they were such a great starting point for the illustration. And, and I worked from them, but then I also added some other pieces that had to do with her story. And I found myself working that way a lot with little snippets of source inspiration that contributors would send me. And then I would add another piece of illustration to that story. So I loved that sort of collaborative approach. Another really great thing about being the author and illustrator of the book is that because I was pulling together the manuscript and working on the illustrations at the same time, I had the benefit of treating the book sort of like a big puzzle because there's so many different pieces of content and they could sort of be designed and then moved around at the last minute. And so I luckily had this incredibly patient (laughs) designer, Sarah Smith Mm -hmm. at uh, Workman, who was just so kind and patient with me while we designed all the layouts. So I actually laid out we we laid out the whole book with my sketches, sketches for every illustration that's in the book. And then once everything was sort of laid out, and we had tweaked a bunch of things, then I went on to work on all the final illustrations. So though I started the book in, in earnest in early 2019, I really wasn't working on the final illustrations until right after we went into lockdown in California in 2020. That's fascinating to hear that process. I'd love to hear both of your responses here, but what? why do you think a book like this is important to have in our world today? Or another way of asking that would be like, what do you hope folks take away from this book? I think it's so important because it, it tells the stories of so many different people and so many different perspectives. And kind of, you know, adding to what Lindsay said, 
you get everyone's individual experience and story, yet you see how similar they kind of are. So I, I would hope, I mean, it's your baby, Lindsay, but I would hope um, that people would take away that just how many ways there are to relate to someone totally different than you through food and through your experiences. So well said. I think that I would say pretty much the same thing that, you know, I started the process with so many questions and I ended the process with so many questions. And I talk about this in the introduction too, that I hope that experiencing this book and sitting down with it and looking through it, there are there's a place for everyone's story really in it. And I hope that when people spend time with it, it leaves them with more questions than they had and that they maybe have a new curiosity about exploring something through cooking that they didn't before or or listening to a new voice that they hadn't listened to before, whether that's about their own heritage and food heritage or someone that they don't know that much about. I think that food is such a powerful way to listen to other people's stories and develop empathy through listening to those stories. And so that's, I think, like in a big picture way, that's kind of really what this is all about. So we always end with a little game. So I want to pivot to the game in a second. But lastly, we're a show on cookbooks. So I'd love to just hear from both of you if there are particular cookbooks that are meaningful to you as, you know, Lindsay, a home cook or Kat as a chef or, or even cookbook authors whose work have been, whose broad work has been particularly influential to you. Go ahead, Kat. Oh man, I knew I'd be put on the spot. I'm <laughs> thinking of things like I have to like process and then I can like, um, but off the top of my head, the Malise cookbook is really important to me. Um, Josiah, who's the chef of Malise, had such a role in just developing me as a cook and, and then my career. He kind of even acted like a father figure. I did my externship with him and I was just so out of place. So his book is very, you know, feels very personal to me. And then of course, the Restaurant of Meadowood cookbook. That was like one of the first cookbooks that I was actually there while while they were developing it and shooting it. And while Christopher was writing, he wrote all of it himself. And like, he kind of, you know, went off into like some you know, secluded place of his house and just like wrote. And it was a really cool process to witness and then to see it in print after all the photo shoots and after just witnessing the process that he went through and that creative time for him was very, very cool. One cookbook that has been really influential to me is um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, because uh, it's illustrated, of course, uh, by one of my art and illustration heroes, Wendy McNaughton and the amazing Samin Nasrat. A cookbook that I use all the time is Adina Sussman's Sababa. Sababa, yeah. I love that book and have been cooking out of it a lot lately. And I think someone whose voice has influenced me is Julia Tertian. I just respect and admire her writing so much and her philosophy and her approach to sort of cooking and telling stories about cooking. And I've been really enjoying her new book as well. Awesome. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we'd play a game. I'm not going to ask you to cook for each other. I know <laughs> okay. we talked about that. So instead, I'm going to, we'll, we'll give you each a chance to go, but I'm going to ask you if you can name a culinary icon, a culinary hero for you. So someone who you are hosting for dinner, this is kind of the, like, what's your dream dinner party 
guest mm. list question, right? But we're going to pick one one woman you can invite for dinner and who's a who's an icon to you or who you idolize and we have these cards here so we have proteins vegetables flavors which are you know spices herbs uh, flavoring agents and then secret ingredient stack which can be kind of random or obscure so for each of you i'll draw one of the one of each four so you'll have a, a set of ingredients think of it as kind of like the basket on chopped right you open it up here's what you have to work with and tell us who's coming for dinner and what you might make for them with that set of ingredients how does that sound oh man all right we get a little insight into your culinary brains and who you who you idolize career-wise too so who wants to go first Oh, Lindsay, you should go. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say that. I'm like, I, okay, this is gonna be super embarrassing because I'm I'm sure that whatever I am going to create with the items from that basket is going to pale in comparison. <laughs> you'll, but, um, you'll be I'll great. Do my best. It'll be awesome. Okay, let's see what you're working with first. Okay, you, the protein you have is lamb. Hmm. Uh, let's pick a flavor for you. You have mint. Okay. Uh, vegetable is peas. And your secret ingredient card is, oh, smoked salmon. Mm, okay. All right. So first tell us who, who you would love to have for dinner, if you could choose anyone to come over, and then tell us what you might make mm. for them. And you can, of course, assume you have like a fully stocked pantry as well. Okay. <laughs> uh, I would invite Jessica B. Harris to my dinner party because uh, I would just love to spend an evening with her. She is such an incredible and knowledgeable person, culinary hero. Okay, with lamb, peas, mint, and smoked salmon, I think I would do, okay, no judgment, cat. okay. <laughs> I think I would do sort of like a, like a, like a long, like a slow roasted lamb, like a braise. And then I would do something with the peas and mint, like a smashed pea mint puree kind of thing. And with the smoked salmon, that's a real, <laughs> maybe I would do, I think maybe I would have the smoked salmon in uh, an appetizer to that meal. Like I would make a, some sort of canapé or a, some like a smoked salmon dip or something mm. to sort of begin the meal. That sounds great. I think that that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if Dr. Harris would like that, but <laughs> it sounds I thought you were going to say I would freeze the salmon for later. No. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said that. Super smart. That's breakfast the next morning, right? Yeah. Some bagels. Yeah. Yeah. Some bagels. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, Kat, let's draw you a new set of cards so you're you're not influenced by Lindsay's menu. Yeah. Okay. The protein you have is beans. Okay. The vegetable you have is cabbage. Mm -hmm. Flavor is lemon. Okay. And your secret ingredient is rice cakes. Rice cakes. The crunchy ones? These look like they're the like crunchy store-bought. Yeah. Um, yeah, round ones. And tell us also who you're who you're inviting. Okay. Um, so I've met her before, but I think that I would invite Elena Arzak. I met her while doing an event in Germany, I believe, or a while back. But she's just so inspiring, so powerful and interesting. And I just would love to continue to hear about, you know, her, her restaurant and, and everything that she does. Okay, so I would probably take the cabbage and either like really hard saute, like in a wok 
or I would take the whole head and like grill it and then cut it up so that you still get like crunchy, but you're getting some sort of like um, charred flavor and have that kind of be like a room temperature charred cabbage salad. Um, that then I'd do like a lemon vinaigrette, lemon zest. And then I'd make like a crunchy granola like condiment, I think, by cooking the beans, drying them and then deep frying them. So they kind of puff and mixing that with the crumbled rice cakes and then probably like a bunch of spices and herbs, like a savory, crunchy bean and rice cake granola. I love that. Wow. Yeah, I love salads. I like all different textures. So I think that would be Yeah. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I think Jessica Harris would probably want to come to your dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) You can merge. It can be one big dinner party. Yeah. You can cook together. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you both, Lindsay and Kat, for joining us on Salt and Spine. So fun to have you. Thank you for having us. This was great. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from Why We Cook. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our intern, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.